Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how is Australia dealing with COVID-19 now? Over the last year and a bit, when we've all been locked down at various stages into our 2K or into our 5K, a lot of us had family and friends in Australia who we were receiving photos from as they went about what looked like a pretty nice, normal life. Footy games, restaurants, festivals, because after early lockdowns and extremely strict border controls, COVID-19 was being managed by a zero tolerance approach, allowing most states to get on with those fairly normal lives. But then Delta got in, and as we know, the highly infectious variant is now seeping across the country. More than half of Australia's 25 million people are in lockdown, and coupled with a slow vaccination program, it has made matters a little more dire there. To talk about how the country is dealing with this latest iteration of its pandemic, we're joined today by an old friend, and I'm delighted to welcome Peter Bodkin, formerly of this parish, but who is now back in Australia and is the editor of Australian Associated Press's Fact Check Division to The Explainer. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter, and you are in Sydney. Can you bring us back to before this lockdown? What was life like for you there? So before the current outbreak and lockdowns, life was surprisingly normal. We still had some COVID restrictions in place, like restrictions on the number of people you could have in venues and um, some larger indoor events, but largely we were living our lives almost like it was pre-pandemic. So people were going to restaurants, people were planning events, going on interstate holidays. I even saw my first gig in uh, a long time. So things were yeah surprisingly surprisingly normal and then this outbreak happened what was the starting point of that how did it manifest the outbreak in sydney started with a limousine driver who was driving flight crews to and from the airport and he got infected with covid-19 and that started spreading in the community first in the eastern suburbs of sydney but then the outbreak really spread and started becoming serious in the southwestern and western suburbs of Sydney. And that's where, at the moment, it's still concentrated, although it has spread to a lot of other areas. And what kind of case numbers are we talking about? At the moment, we're recording about a 1,000 cases a day in New South Wales. There's also around 100 cases a day or slightly fewer in Victoria, which is also in lockdown at the moment. Um, There was a brief outbreak as well in Queensland, but that seems to have died down or been snubbed out. But the other states have been mostly spared. So it's really concentrated in, in New South Wales and Victoria to a lesser extent at the moment. And when we're talking about these case numbers, can we just put them into context of what the population of New South Wales is? So there's about eight and a half million people in New South Wales for those bit over a thousand cases and Victoria is around six and a half million people for their hundred or so cases. So Victoria, for example, went into lockdown when there was just a couple of cases there and that's an entire state of 6.5 million people going into lockdown with just, just a few cases. What kind of lockdown are you in now in New South Wales? Obviously here we've had varying different degrees of lockdown, you know, from being locked into within two kilometres of our home, then to five kilometres, and then some lockdowns, you know, you do feel like you have a little bit more freedom. What's the New South Wales one like right now? We have two sets of rules in place, which are a little bit confusing, particularly for outsiders. So there's 
harder lockdown in Western and Southwestern Sydney, the most affected regions there. Up until recently, people outside of those areas, so to say in other parts of Sydney, could go up to 10 kilometres outside their homes. Uh, so, for example, for me, living in the, the inner western suburbs of Sydney, that meant I could still go to the beach. Those restrictions were changed a little while ago so that everyone had to stay within a five-kilometre radius of their homes. It's a little bit confusing, though, because you have to stay within five kilometres of your home or within your local government area. This is a bit like the council areas in, in Dublin. Um, and some of those council areas are huge. It might be 50 kilometres from one end to the other. So it, it really makes a big difference where you live. Some parts of the city, um, you have access to a wide range of amenities and some areas you're quite restricted in what you can do. The areas that are in a more stringent lockdown where there's been more cases of COVID-19, um, there's also a curfew in place, a nighttime curfew. So unless you have a good excuse, you can't be outside your home within those hours. It's certainly being more strictly enforced in those areas. So it, it is a bit of a tale of two lockdowns. Uh, when you go to some areas outside of those worst affected zones, certainly up until recently, you'd barely know that there was a lockdown on. I remember going to Bondi Beach about a month ago and you'd barely see a mask. There were lots of people out. There were people uh, sitting around sipping coffees um, outdoors, but there are a lot of people around. And I think you contrast that with some of the areas where the lockdown has been stricter and there's been a lot more focus of enforcement with police. You'd see a very different situation there. Yeah, how is it being enforced? Is there fines? Is What are the penalties if you're caught breaking rules and how often are people being caught? There are fines and in some extreme cases, people have been, been charged with the more flagrant breaches of the rules. So in cases where, for example, people have been um, infectious, known they've been infectious, but still moving around the community. But generally, it's been enforcement through, through fines and they are being used. I mean, we have these daily press conferences here where the leader of the state's will get up and they'll talk about the number of cases and often they'll be accompanied by a senior police officer who talks about some of the enforcement they've taken, some of the fines that have been issued. There's definitely been a criticism of there being more heavy-handed policing within some of these areas where there are more cases at the moment, which also tend to be the areas of Sydney where people have less money, um, are more likely to come from non-English speaking backgrounds, so there's definitely a concern about the uh, heavy hand of the law falling more on, on certain members of the community. But by and large, I mean, outside of the areas where the largest number of cases are, again, you would rarely see police in the street. You don't really notice that the enforcement is being taken. Most of it is probably being done more by community policing in the sense of people seeing others wearing masks are more likely to also wear masks. And, and that's really. I would say, the experience for a lot of people outside of those most affected areas. So how many weeks have you been in lockdown now? We're getting into around our 10th week now. So what was uh, initially started as a, a fairly light-handed lockdown, uh, that was has been progressively increased in its se severity. So as I mentioned, at one point we had a 10-kilometre radius. Now it's a 5-kilometre radius. Earlier in the lockdown, 
a lot of retail stores were still open. So you could still go and buy, you know, clothes. You could still go and buy things that would probably be deemed non-essential. Um, and it wasn't until a few weeks into the lockdown when it was clear that those measures weren't really uh, slowing down the spread of cases that more stringent measures were put in place. But it feels like a long 10 weeks. Yeah, and is it having any impact on hospital capacity yet? Because what we're doing here now is looking at case numbers, but also our um, hospital numbers. What are the hospital numbers in New South Wales like? At this point, they're, they're still relatively low, but there has been a definite focus or shift of focus in the thinking and the the way that the numbers are expressed. So Gladys Berejiklian, who's the Premier, the state leader in New South Wales, has certainly started to move in these daily press conferences that, that she holds away from the case numbers being the most important thing and the first thing that are mentioned every day and looking more closely at well, what are the hospitalisation numbers, how many people are in intensive care, how many people are dying with the disease. I think that's part of the shift away in the thinking in New South Wales of this being an outbreak that can be cut to zero or dramatically reduced. And now the thinking is more around, this is not something that's controllable to those kind of numbers. So we need to get to the next stage, the mitigation stage, really speeding up the vaccine rollout and learning to live with this virus rather than thinking that we can get rid of it completely. I do want to talk more about how people are feeling on the ground about the strategy being undertaken in Australia, but you mentioned zero COVID there and your neighbours in New Zealand also had a zero COVID strategy, but they also now have an outbreak as well. How does it compare to the Australian one? What's happening in the, in the country? New Zealand's outbreak in some ways is quite similar to Victoria's outbreak in terms of case numbers, the stage and the outbreak they're at. Similar population, we're looking at around 5 million people it's mostly concentrated in Auckland and at this stage it's been kept relatively well under control but at the same time the numbers are still increasing or holding steady a, a little under the 100 mark. Their lockdown has been extended and uh, it looks like at least in the case of Auckland may go on for a while. And is it looking like they will be able to regain their COVID zero strategy? It's too early to say. I think from looking at the way things have progressed in Australia. It's true that in New South Wales, the lockdown came late and it came with initially quite relaxed measures. But even in Victoria, where they enjoyed a long lockdown um, through mid last year, managed to bring a large outbreak under control and back to zero, the same measures that they used at that point don't seem to be having the same level of impact this time. So there is, at least in Australia, I think a growing understanding that the Delta variant may be a game changer in this regard once it really gets in the community to a, to a reasonable extent that the strategies that previously worked in stamping COVID out altogether and getting back to zero cases may not work this time and that there needs to be more thought given to what the alternative strategy is. Is there any talk or indication of what the new strategy will be? So the stated plan nationally for a little while now has been built around vaccination targets when first 70% and then 80% of 
the eligible population, and that's uh, at the stage those targets were set, those 16 and over. Uh, when those vaccination targets were reached, that's when nationally there was a loose agreement to start easing restrictions. And then once we got to the 80% mark, essentially do away with lockdowns, do away with border closures um, and start living with COVID. The outbreaks that we've been having have definitely sped up that process. So New South Wales vaccination rates have been racing ahead of a lot of the other states uh, by virtue of the outbreak here and people wanting to obviously protect themselves, but also be, be free of some of the restrictions. But we've also seen a fracturing of that kind of agreement. So Western Australia, which has been one of the states that has most successfully um, got to zero cases, introduced quick lockdowns. They're saying that they want to continue to pursue zero or as close to zero cases into the future. It's not clear exactly how they plan to achieve that, whether that means having their borders shut indefinitely to other states where there is COVID. I mean, it's it's worth mentioning for Irish listeners how unfamiliar all of this is for Australians. We have a federal system like the United States, but you wouldn't ordinarily really notice the difference going from one state to another. The, the last time I think that a state border was closed was in 1919 for the flu pandemic then. So this whole idea of not being able to travel between states is alien to a lot of people. Um, and the suggestion that state borders may continue to be shut for years to come is, um, is something that I think, you know, a lot of people would, would struggle to deal with and, and would be well against. But then uh, it's also proven politically popular for people to eradicate COVID successfully. Uh, Mark McGowan, who's the Premier in Western Australia, won an election earlier this year in an absolute landslide really on a platform of his party's successful handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. So while these kind of strategies remain electorally uh, popular, um, it's possible that some states will choose to go on a different path, um, one that sets them at odds with different parts of the country. Yeah. Does that mean that people in different parts of the country feel differently about the, the pandemic? What is public sentiment in general or is there just is it impossible to be general because of the different states' approach and different lockdowns happening at different times? It's difficult to say because I mean, living in New South Wales, we get one view of the news, and I think there's a there's a perception here that some of the um, some of the states, some of the premiers are pursuing unrealistic policies that it's not possible to keep this virus out together out altogether forever, and that we do. We're going to need to learn to live with it at some point. So we want that point to be as soon as possible. But as I said, it, it has proven so far to be electorally positive for uh, leaders in some of those states to really have a tough line on, on COVID and border closures and things relating to that. So while it continues to prove popular, it may well be um, the case that different states take very different views. I mean, Certainly my perception living in New South Wales and in Sydney is that people are um, sick of being in lockdown, would like to move to uh, later stages as soon as possible, would like to have some of the freedoms that you take for granted, like the ability to travel um, interstate, internationally, to see your friends and family. 
people would like to have those back as soon as possible. And that has really been driving um, a lot of the faster vaccination take up here than in some other places. Yeah, because one of the things that we've been reading and seeing a lot about is that the vaccination rollout in Australia has been so much slower than it has been, particularly from Ireland, but it, a lot of European countries are at a kind of quicker rollout pace. Is there any particular reasons for that in Australia? I think it's a combination of complacency and mismanagement. So Australia's strategy from very early in the pandemic when the the vaccines were under development and then was clear that certain candidates were effective was to bet heavily on the AstraZeneca vaccine. There's a company in Australia called CSL that had the capacity and the ability to manufacture that vaccine locally. So Australia's vaccination strategy really at that point was built around the AstraZeneca vaccine with some backup from the Pfizer vaccine. The problem with that was when the issue started to emerge with the AstraZeneca vaccine and rare cases of a blood clotting disorder that essentially stymied that plan um, when European countries and other countries started restricting access to the AstraZeneca vaccine to certain cohorts or restricting access to it altogether. There was an obvious issue for the government in convincing people to take a vaccine which other countries were saying is not good enough for us. And that really required uh, a major shift in the strategy to get more doses of Pfizer to look at other vaccine um, options. And that really set Australia behind. There's also been some poor messaging around those changes in the, the vaccine recommendations and rules. So that's where I think the, the mismanagement piece comes into play. I think the complacency and the reason why that mismanagement could happen to an extent is because for a long time Australia was so successful in managing COVID with few or no cases. People were in most states and most cities enjoying life almost like normal with the exception of being able to travel easily internationally. So there wasn't a great impetus for people to go out and get vaccinated. Whereas once the outbreak started and it was clear that this was something that we weren't going to kill again to zero and that vaccination was really the only way out unless we were to happy to accept high numbers of deaths, that's when the vaccination rollout really started to get momentum. Um, so I don't think there's an unwillingness there for most people to get vaccinated. It was really a case of access and reason. And just to go back to New Zealand for a second there, Peter, what's the vaccine rollout there like? It's been a similar case with New Zealand as Australia. Their vaccination rollout now is actually even further behind Australia's. I think last time I checked, Australia was about third last in the OECD for full vaccination coverage, and New Zealand was behind that. So that gives you some idea. But I think similarly, now that there is the risk in the community there, um, they've started to ramp up the vaccination drive, really trying to, to get both the supply and the urgency um, for people to go out and get vaccinated. We're seeing a lot of vaccine misinformation in Ireland. Obviously, we're fact-checking every day here in the journal. Your job is fact-checking over in Sydney as well. Is misinformation having a role in vaccine hesitancy and what examples of it are you seeing there? It's been interesting watching the types of misinformation 
changed throughout the pandemic, the types of misinformation we're seeing in Australia. Previously, we were importing a lot of misinformation. So we'd see a lot of material coming out of the US, the UK, other European countries, and that being used in Australia. So a lot of that, for example, early in the pandemic was playing it down, suggesting that COVID-19 wasn't killing that many people in countries that were badly affected like the US. Uh, Therefore, we shouldn't worry too much about it. And our lockdown measures and other things were uh, misplaced. That has definitely started to shift with the increase in cases here and the speeding up of the vaccine rollout. The misinformation around vaccines seems to have gone into overdrive in the last couple of months as more and more people are encouraged to get to, to get vaccinated. Um, children are starting to become eligible for vaccines, which has opened up a new front in the kind of war around vaccination. And now we're even seeing the point where some of this misinformation is being exported. So, for example, there was a, um, a US conspiratorial online talk show that recently started claiming that children who had been vaccinated in a particular mass vaccination drive in Sydney had had started dying. And then this was started being fed back into the Australian misinformation ecosystem as fact, even though it was completely baseless and untrue. So we're seeing a lot more interplay of international material and Australian material where there is now this interest overseas in what's happening here. And some of this offshore misinformation is feeding back into networks here and and, uh, kind of exacerbating existing problems there. I mean, I don't think that Australia necessarily has a particularly anti-vaccine or vaccine-hesitant population, but there are certainly some homegrown influences and politicians who are driving that message and at the very least driving hesitancy. Um, and that, that issue is, is only flashing up even more now that uh, there's so much focus on vaccination rates and getting people to get the jab. Yeah, and speaking about information that travels, we actually debunked a claim that was going around about Australian students that were accidentally vaccinated and that that claim was missing context. So we at the journal debunk that here. So yeah, it does. It is interesting to see that ecosystem go from one place to the other. But in terms of the type of misinformation that you're seeing, is it mostly centered on vaccines now or is there more general COVID stuff coming through as well? Really, the focus has been heavily on on vaccines. Uh, We're seeing a lot of a lot of people sharing kind of scaremongering information about side effects and and deaths. Um, um, Another example recently was um, a 17-year-old boy in his final year of high school died suddenly in Sydney from a heart attack. This was completely unrelated to vaccines. He had not been vaccinated, but anti-vaccine activists seized on this to suggest that this was an example of someone um, who had died from side effects from the vaccine, obviously in a attempt to discourage others. So that had no basis in fact, but that kind of emotional material that would make parents perhaps hesitate in allowing their child to get vaccinated is something that we're seeing seeing a lot of. And is it having an impact? The the data suggests it's not. I mean, in New South Wales, we now have um, around two thirds of the eligible population. Again, that's the 16 plus cohort who have had at least one dose. And that's increasing quickly every day. 
as I said, the issue until now has really been one of, of supply, logistics, making it as easy as possible for people to get vaccinated. Now that those issues have largely been solved, it seems people, the vast majority of people are, are pretty keen to get the jab and, as I said, get, get back to living some form of a, a normal life. And for that normal life, Peter, probably international travel will be the thing that feels furthest away for those of you in Australia. One of the things that um, we've seen a lot of talk about here is Australian people not being able to get home because of the controls, the border controls you have there. Is there much sympathy towards those people at home who can't get back um, for a variety of reasons? I think there is sympathy. Certainly there's sympathy from some people in the community. There was a lot of stories, particularly earlier in the pandemic, when people were trying to desperately hitch on any flight they could to get back to Australia when there was quite severe outbreaks in, in other countries. Sometimes people were stuck in, in you know, less developed countries where it was difficult to get access to, to any kind of health services. And because of Australia's border closures and very strict caps on the number of arrivals um, due to the quarantine system, flights back were either non-existent or very expensive or often both people booking flights for exorbitant sums and then finding they were cancelled anyway. That did die down to a certain extent. The numbers of, of arrivals that, that Australia was taking were increased and there's only so many people who, who will try to get home. But there's certainly been some cases where Australia has frankly turned its back on its own citizens um, during the Worst of the outbreak in India, um, there were quite a few Australian nationals in India who were trying to get back and Australia basically stopped taking any arrivals from India regardless of, of caps or vaccination status or anything else. And I'm sure that was unpopular with a lot of those families and a lot of broader expat communities in Australia. I have read those surveys saying that people, by and large, support the border closures and everything that comes with that. So coming back to what I was saying earlier, it seems that as long as these measures are electorally popular, then uh, there's not much appetite to, to disassemble them until, until there is a bigger vaccination coverage, more guarantees that we're not going to suffer the same kind of huge numbers of, of deaths that have occurred in some other countries and we can re safely reopen those borders. But I think there are a lot of people that would like to see that happen um, sooner rather than later. Peter, Australia was kind of the poster boy initially for mandatory hotel quarantine. What's the story with it now? It's obviously still in place now, but what's the future of it? So we have mandatory 14-day hotel quarantine for all international arrivals, um, except for a brief period when there was a travel bubble in operation with New Zealand that did away with, with that quarantine. And that has been largely successful in keeping out COVID-19 cases, although it has to be said that the, virtually all of the outbreaks that we have had that haven't been seeded between the states have come in through hotel quarantine. So obviously it's not 100% effective. Uh, we don't really know exactly what that's going to look like when we do hit those higher vaccination rates and start to open up again. The scenario that's been floated and the most likely outcome is that Australia will do away with quarantine first for some uh, relatively low-risk countries, countries with high vaccination rates, and 
relatively few COVID cases. So I think places like Singapore, New Zealand, obviously Hong Kong have been floated. But like a lot of what's happening at the moment, we're, we're waiting for more shape to be put on that as we get to those higher targets and we, we see what kind of easing of restrictions will happen and how quickly. For yourself, Peter, what's the next few months looking like or is it hard to predict? Well, I'm planning a wedding at the end of November and that wedding was... Planning your own wedding, I'm guessing, not someone else's wedding. <laughs> no, my, my own wedding, my own wedding. Um, and, you know, at, at the time we, was, we started planning this, my fiancé and I, um, we were pretty confident that it was going to go ahead. We wouldn't have a problem. We were even tossing up potentially booking a, an interstate honeymoon. And now, two months away from that wedding, or three months away from that wedding, um, it's looking less and less likely that, it'll, that it will go ahead. So I think our future, unfortunately, looks like uh, an extended lockdown, at least for the next uh, month and a half to two months, and then probably a very gradual easing of restrictions after that um, once we've hit the kind of vaccination rates that many European countries such as Ireland already have. Well, I think we can all sympathise a lot with the idea of facing into one or two months of lockdown and best of luck with it, but best of luck with the wedding. And thanks so much for talking us through all of that on The Explainer today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Peter for joining us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.e forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people will discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.